Hello and welcome to the ballot box. I'm John. Manchester. I'm Andres Besser in New York City. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Ballot Box. So we're actually recording this on the same day as our previous episode and, and kind of building off of it. Um, so um, both Jonathan and I are away this week. So we're talking this week about um, comparative authoritarianism, um, which is a, a, an important, for, but I think in popular culture, particularly an undiscussed form of authoritarianism which uh, um, has become um, particularly noticeable for its rise in, in recent years. Um, so, um, and obviously, Zambia can be argued to fall into this regime to some extent, and, and certainly has done in the past. Um, so, uh, 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 so um, it has obvious relevance to the conversation that we had last week. So um, feel free to listen to that episode if you um, didn't listen to this one. Um, so, um, well, I guess we'll forego our usual, how is everyone doing? Because mm. nothing has changed since last week. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, Chris, we're both enjoying our trips. Yeah. Um, um, hear about them next week. Um, I'm presumably on some kind of Scottish moor at this time. And I yeah. will also presume that you're um, eating some nice Romanian food. Yes, or, or, or traipsing around the Village Museum of Bucharest, which is my favourite Bucharest <laughs> museum. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, anyway, uh, let, let's get in. Uh, so I guess the first thing to start off, kick off with is, um, so what do we mean by competitive authoritarianism? Hmm. As yeah, it's a tricky one to define because it is in some cases, um, in, in some senses, it's like a sort of in-between regime. Um, mm. it's not fully authoritarian like in the kind of classic sense but it's not properly yeah. democratic either um, so th- kind of thinking about where this these things begin and end is because mm. it merges into um, it, it does definitely there are kind of crossover points where you're like really disputing like how dodgy does a democracy have to be to get put in this category and, and how much does a authoritarian regime have to liberalize to to end up in this category as well yeah yeah um competitive authoritarianism i think has been used mostly to talk about countries where there is a degree of competitiveness to the election but then there are other parts of that we typically consider part of democracy that are missing fairness Mm. in elections rule of law um, checks and balances, mm. uh, strong independent civil society. It goes back to a discussion that's been had in academia around thin and thick notions of democracy. So mm. basically, uh, from the point of view of like thick democracy, that democracy has several constituent elements to it. This is a system that has some but lacks others. Yeah. Mm. From the, the point of view of the very thin democracy, kind of Jaworski, mm-hmm. which was very influential in the kind of early 2000s, um, this might, these sort of regimes might actually be put into a democratic 
kind of bucket, right? But they're clearly not, this, they're very different from, from one, say they're very different from Spain or the UK or Canada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think probably the key thing to come out of it is it's essentially a setup where things are notionally democratic, but biased so far in the direction of one party that um, the the democratic credential uh, that the the original article that talks about this in Levitsky and Way in two thousand two uses the term level playing field quite a lot. There's a complete mm-hmm. lack of a level playing field. Um, like it, you could just, I, I sometimes think of this as, and, and this is a simplistic um, way of framing it in some regards, but like, but, but we often talk in terms of elections being free and fair. And, uh, uh, and I think that to some extent competitive authoritarianism is best thought of as elections where the elections are free but not fair um either because perhaps because the media environment is completely owned by um allies of the uh of the government perhaps because um electoral rules are designed to uh, to completely benefit one party um perhaps because of abuse of state resources um but yeah um, and often to some extent all of the above um when mm. we when, when we very often talking about um competitive yeah. authoritarian regime yeah, yeah. And, and, and one distinguishing element to competitive authoritarianism versus just outright authoritarianism is not only the the fact that there are elections but that the opposition can mm. at least you know can theoretically win. I mean, it's not completely impossible for the opposition to win. This is, yes. and that's, that's important because it, it changes kind of the nature. It has kind of downstream consequences for the regime and mm. you know, the sort of way it's, it's structured, et cetera. Um, yeah. And yeah. You, you had a really great point, Chris, that in popular culture, this is not the image of authoritarianism that people have. And I think we obviously latch on to kind of real existing countries to kind of then fashion what we think authoritarianism or democracy looks like. Mm. And that kind of erases the, the diversity around it. And I think now probably China looms very large in the imagination mm. of what people believe yeah. authoritarianism to be a place where there really aren't elections except for at the very local level. Mm. And they're highly uncompetitive. It's kind of the yeah. whole thing. Um, yeah. And in the past, it's probably like the Soviet Union, which also had elections, but- Yeah, and, and of course, um, and of course, in Western Europe and the US, um, Nazi Germany, of course, looms mm. very large in the popular imagination for very obvious, you know, reasons. Um, uh, it's, it's, so yeah, um, and that kind of that's kind of the extreme edge of dictatorship mm. in some extent. It's like totalitarianism, rather, um, you know, countries where um, where the entire kind of culture is almost attempted to be shaped by one party um whereas yeah rather than whereas you're more whereas nowadays if you look around the world there's a lot of countries that essentially don't fall strictly into either the um, popular imagination version of democracy or dictatorship i would say 
Um, yeah, um, so to give kind of, for example, a, a slightly a tougher version, which I wouldn't personally classify as a competitive authoritarian regime, um, Russia, for example, like there are, you know, parties that run, multiple parties that run in elections. Um, there are real election campaigns, but, you know, those parties aren't basically, uh, um, are basically fronts to some extent, mm. in, in most cases for the Kremlin, um, elections are clearly rigged um, to some extent. Um, and and mm. so it, it's very clearly a case of the, reg the regime isn't really, isn't even really a competitive authoritarian regime, but it's not, it doesn't kind of fall into that classic idea of like, there aren't any other parties um, yeah. There's only no, no, no. there's only what one guy in charge, and, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, um, and I think that's that's uh, I think we could we could pull a whole episode about kind of um, democracy and authoritarianism, popular culture at some point, um, which would mm. be a very fascinating kind of thing. But like you say, I mean, when you think about the most famous fictional authoritarianisms, they all have a kind of reminiscent of the of the kind of totalitarian. Mm. sort of style authoritarianisms of the 20th century in Europe, um, something like the Empire and Star Wars or something, is not, is, is mm. the, these kind of very famous fictional ones, there are always these complete authoritarians. And yeah, I do think there's there's probably a kind of, um, it, it's hard for a lot of people to envisage these these situations where there's, and, and, then, and the fact that these things are not, uh, I think I said at the top of the episode that they're kind of in between and, and obviously they are to a certain extent, but also it, that is a kind of unhelpful phrasing because it assumes that these are all countries which are in the middle of a journey from yes. one of these destinations to the other, either they, this is like, and I think this is what academia kind of thought these were in the nineties, whereas there these, there's not a real regime type. This is just, uh, a country at some point from either becoming authoritarian to becoming democratic or vice versa. Um, whereas actually this is for many of them, this is the end goal is to create these stable sort of quite authoritarian, but where there's still some kind of competitiveness in elections yeah. and it's desirable for, for some countries, yeah. but some for, authoritarians as well. For example, you know, all, all political regimes need the desire to some extent popular legitimacy. Because yeah, you want you want you want public support, um, even if you're a dictatorship. Because you know you want to prevent, for example, any kind of uprising or any kind of regime change that might work against you from whatever angle it comes from. Um, and competitive authoritarianism is a a good way of doing that because you essentially make it grey to what extent the regime is democratic or not. Um, mm. So you, you, uh, you, and you, you create kind of, you can create conflict within the opposition to a certain extent, because for example, um, where there are gen, where there are sort of genuine elections happening, then um, even if they're incredibly biased, you create a kind of argument around what extent you compete in elections? To what extent you, um, to what extent the opposition should line up together with each other, uh, and so it can actually be quite important in terms of, quite useful in terms of splintering opposition groups. 
um, yeah. even while you attempt to disrupt them. Mm. And and to bring the uh, bring the um, bring opposition some opposition parties on side sometimes it can be mm. very if you have these I mean this could also be a kind of um, a, a, a a multi-party kind of regime in some respects mm. where different groups participate in you know, rigging things in its favour I mean this is very obviously what's happened in Turkey and that they've managed to split one of the the opposition parties off and into the governing coalition um, at yeah. this point, um, yeah. uh, allowing them to that, sort of share in the spoils. Yeah, that's that's what uh, one of the more undiscussed cases, um, which a country I find quite interesting is Malaysia, where yeah. very often the government has succeeded in, so the government had this kind of gigantic coalition called the Barazan National, um, which they, essentially managed to capture opposition parties quite often and just bring them over. Um, and they finally lost power um, at the last election. And um, But they managed to splinter the governing coalition and basically um, rebuild a new coalition out of it. Um, so, yeah, um, even when they did lose an election, they still managed to eventually like get power back after not very long. Um, <laughs> So, so I mean, this this term was invented to make sense of regimes that had been transformed after the Cold War, the so-called mm. like third wave of democratization. So there's lots of new regimes that now had elections um, in Eastern Europe, in Latin America, in Africa, Asia, mm. but which weren't fully democratic, right? And then, as Johnny said, that they kind of initially thought everyone thought, okay, they'll just become democratic down the way, but then they remain stable in this kind of author mm. authoritarian, competitive mm. authoritarianism. Now, I think this is still a useful concept because now we're seeing a lot of countries that used to be fairly consolidated in their democracy, but are now becoming kind of like competitive authoritarian. Mm. Uh, no, sorry, yeah, that they're now becoming like competitive authoritarianism. And I, I don't think that the coiners of this um, particular concept had that in mind. I don't think that they would have thought that uh, countries such as, you know, um, Hungary or Turkey, uh, given the stage at which they were in the 21st century, would mm. then have like this kind of in incredible backsliding. Um, yeah, particularly Hungary, which I think everyone, like there was a, a lot of, um, there, there, there was a lot of naivety about Hungary. Like there was this idea that Hungary, Hungary was like one of the poster children for democratic mm. transition at one point. Like it was considered to be a kind of fully consolidated democracy, like relatively soon after mm. the end of the Cold War. And yeah, since 2011, it's just incredibly quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah, Hungary was always cited as one of those why you should have a pacted transition from authoritarianism yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah. I mean, basically building just that, that that Spain did it quite well. Now we have this other example, it's Hungary, pacted transition. And obviously there was yeah. Poland, which did pacted transition and, and then Romania, which wasn't expected to do very well because it didn't have a pacted transition. And now... Yeah, what has not worked out that way at all. Yeah. I mean, it's for, for, for listeners who aren't um, aware of the political science literature, pact of transition is essentially uh, one that's negotiated mm. um, between an outgoing authoritarian regime and the uh, and the um, and an opposition. 
Yeah, yeah. Hungary, Hungary had a, a had a series of roundtables in in the late nineteen eighties um, between the Communist Party and the opposition parties, which were mm. seen as kind of as um, securing democracy by making the parties all recognize each other as as uh, as um, legitimate opponents and and creating a level playing field which is obviously not how things have wound up Um, (laughs) if you know any if you know anything about hungary's current day politics at all um, i think most people are aware of at this point (laughs) yeah and that hungary is a very interesting example because that's one that exists within the eu and i think Mm. we can we can also debate whether whether Poland now counts as one as well, but mm. Hungary, and I think unequivocally, we would struggle not to put it in this category. And mm. yeah, exists within what is supposed to be one of the world's major clubs of democratic countries, um, which is, yeah, which is really, that nowhere should be really complacent about the risks of, of this type of regime yeah. emerging. Correct. Um, right. Yeah, absolutely. So, so given that we're still kind of talking about the, concepts or kind of uh this this sort of uh this this thing that political scientists do endlessly it's kind of like our bread and butter right it's trying to name things that happen in real life and kind of in a way that makes sense and kind of applies to several of them yeah. um who who do we who which which regimes are authoritarian but we would not consider competitive authoritarianism just to kind of like make you know kind of start etching out yeah. the outlines of this concept um yeah yeah because i yeah i think it, obviously we can dismiss like countries like china and north korea where that it's just a fully one-party state yes. um right. so i think that's obvious for um everyone uh, and as i said i i wouldn't really count russia for instance which i think it uh, you know might appear to have some of the elements of a competitive authoritarian regime um, in that, you know, elections do happen, there are multiple parties running in them, blah, blah, blah. But where, as I said earlier, all the parties involved are, are, are to basically to some extent at this point, Kremlin approved mm. at this point. Um, and, and real opposition gets jailed. Yes, mm. yes, exactly. Yeah, mm. I, yeah, I would, I would consider, and I do think, yeah, I do see, they get your points definitely with Russia. I think that's probably the, Regardless of which category we put it in, I think Russia is probably the borderline kind of thing. Yes, between it. Some, somewhere close to the borderline. I would put it yeah. the other side of it. Mm. I think, yeah, I, um, but uh, yeah, so I think, you know, yeah. I'll probably argue, and, and it's one of those things where, as with all categories, there is a fuzziness there because the fact of the matter is, like, to some extent, what you're saying with a competitive authoritarian regime is it's a, it's a regime which is basically fundamentally authoritarian, but where you can imagine the opposition winning election. And to some extent, you don't know that the opposition can win an election until the opposition wins an election. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, and obviously that hasn't happened in Russia. Maybe one day it will. Mm-hmm. I doubt it. But yeah. I, yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah, but, 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 but if the opposition peers are in jail, it's kind of unlikely. I mean, that's already a kind of yeah. an important data point in that. And, and I, you know, so like Venezuela, I think I would have considered it a competitive authoritarian regime as, as Levinsky and Wade did under Chavez. 
Chavez, you know, kind of dismantled a lot of the checks and balances, created an unlevel playing field. Um, but the opposition was still there, organized some <laughs> major kind of strikes, and yeah. they had, you know, kind of good I, run I, to it. I managed to win a midterm <laughs> election as well, which yeah. I, is, is that's true, you know, an important yeah. Um, six, yeah. Um, since since Maduro's taken power, um, yeah, yeah, it was really important to know what the reaction was when when he lost the 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 parliament. Right, he we we have an episode on this. Small plug here. Mm. <laughs> he yes. basically dissolved it and created a well. He he didn't dissolve it. He created a new parliament that had all the powers of the old one, and you know basically so so winning in 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 the Venezuela today means nothing essentially. Like so. Yeah. And and now actually a lot of opposition figures are in jail or they're exiled. So yeah, and the opposition it's no longer the yeah. opposition. The opposition has essentially moved to a strategy of like street protest and yeah, uh, uh, and uh, uh, and attempting and uh, winning international right. support rather right. than mm. rather right. than trying to win elections. I think that, right. in fact they've boycotted like uh, several of the recent elections, haven't they? Mm. Yeah, the, the, so, the most recent election saw a boycott by by yeah. basically most of the major yeah. figures. So it's no longer a competitive authoritarianism. It used yeah. to be, but I would put it very firmly into just plain old authoritarianism. Yeah, yeah, but I I think we could. Um, yeah, I think it basically I, I would place Hungary in it. I would place I think I would still place Turkey in here because I yes. think they're both places mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. we've seen in the local elections in both countries opposition candidates winning. Mm. They're a genuine. I mean, this is not like Russia, which mm. where the to varying degrees the other opposition parties are still supportive of of Putin. The mm. parties in in these countries are genuinely opposed to the government and yes and, yeah, and, and yeah and as you say importantly can win um local mm. elections at the very least so yeah. i think it i think it's just about possible to imagine the hungarian and turkish opposition parties winning mm. winning national elections as well albeit yeah. particularly in hungary it's incredibly difficult because of for example gerrymandering and, mm. and so on but yeah yeah, things yeah. things are stacked against them, but they definitely. I think in both of those countries, given that the popularity of the of the regime seems to have waned slightly, that there is there is some chances of of them being of them removing through democratic means at the, mm. the governments of the next election. Obviously, Hungary now has this um, this giant opposition coalition, which is planning on contesting the next election, which mm. is running neck and neck with polls with Fidesz at the moment and um, like yeah. you say this is not a level playing field so the slightest um a win for for Fidesz can be easily construed into absolute power for them still yeah well uh, yeah and the big problem there is I think the opposition would need to run a fair bit ahead of Fidesz in mm. in, a, in votes in order to win a majority because of how gerrymandered the electoral system is which mm. you know is, is a good example of of um, how competitive authoritarianism uh, maintains itself through, for example, fiddling with electoral rules. Um, mm-hmm. um, which, yeah, have very clearly in, in the Hungarian case been structured in the favour of the uh, of Fidesz. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, competitive authoritarian regimes, as we said, you know, they also existed They've existed in history, right? In the past as well. I mean, it's not mm. only modern day ones. That's what. That's why the concept was invented. Mm. Um, 
Yeah. And the authors of like the coiners of this concept have a useful list in their newest uh, article from 2020, where they try to list kind of like contemporary examples of, of competitive authoritarianism. So they, they include like Bangladesh, Turkey, um, mm. Hungary's there, so is Montenegro, Serbia, North Macedonia, Kyrgyzstan, Benin, Botswana, Mozambique, Zambia is definitely there, Uganda. Mm. I'm not going to read them all out, but um, so, mm. you know, just several of them. So, that's, yeah. so, so readers get kind of a sense of what sort of regimes we're, we're, we're talking about. Mm. Mm-hmm. Although, of course, since that was written, Montenegro has seen a change of government. So it's showing that this is not a known sort of thing. And, and so is North Macedonia. Yes, presumably. yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. yeah, showing that these these yeah these are not um these are well, not so authoritarian that they're undefeatable. They? Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And, right. But and, that's that's and, I think that that's the point of the concept, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And and similarly, in like earlier versions of their articles, they talked about regimes that have already um, transitioned as well to some extent. Um, so, for example, um, actually, referring back to last week's episode, um, Zambia kind of twice in the past, <laughs> um, I think, was described mm-hmm. as, as having kind of competitive authoritarian moments. Um, uh, Mexico in the 1990s, which, you know, Andreas is obviously <laughs> more aware of than I am, <laughs> um, is, a, is a very good example. And, and Romania between 1990 and 1996 as well is often described as a competitive authoritarian regime when the the um, semi-authoritarian former communist Jan Aleski was mm. about. Um, I think you could probably make an argument for Slovakia in that period as well. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I think mm. Serbia has definitely been this twice as well in the 90s and then now as well. And mm. we're seeing that the, in the end of the Milosevic period was defeated by one of these mm. liberalising electoral outcomes. Um, but also yeah. combined with the kind of street protests etc we see i think the removal of this regime in in armenia as well is a good example of this that yeah. you also had the the democratic revolution element then you had the liberalizing electoral outcome as well yeah yeah, um, yeah. yeah and and ukraine as well um <clears throat> once again almost on two separate occasions you can basically describe from independence up until the orange revolution in the early 2000s as kind of one phase and then um, a fall back into competitive authoritarianism under the party of regions and then kind of obviously with the um, uh, with the um, uh, with the Maiden um, uh, uh, a kind of return to a, a more democratic form of government um, yeah um, yeah I, I wanted to kind of um, mention from a functionalist point of view um, in the sense that this kind of insistence, this this branch of kind of scientific thinking that that believes that everything can kind of acquire a function over time. Um, from a functionist point of view, why why elections, how elections work in a competitive authoritarian regime? Like why mm. why it is that they create stability? Because they are very stable forms of of, of a regime, and and that's kind of one of the one of the points that the original authors made. Um, and, and now that there's been research into elections in authoritarian countries, it, it's it's clear that those authoritarian regimes that do hold elections are statistically more likely to last longer, right? Mm. So one of one of the things that elections does is it creates like circulation of elites because you change people 
because there's a set timetable for for the expiration of your job, right? And yeah. when when a leader overstays, creates huge amounts of underlying tension. But then also, if there's not a system, if people don't know when that leader will leave, um, biology catches up. And once they're too old, um, huge conflicts kind of emerge, right? So, like, I think the most famous example. I mean, there's several famous examples. One is obviously Stalin's death that kind of created an, uh, quite a lot of instability at the top, although not it didn't quite seep into society. But Mao's imminent retirement created this huge upheaval in China called the Cultural mm. Revolution that was completely disastrous, right? And so Deng Xiaoping, his uh, successor, didn't create elections, but did pass a legislation or pass a constitutional change in China that limited. Um, the Chinese leader to having two terms in as mm. in mandate, right? The the Mexican yeah. system under the PRI um, didn't allow for re-election, and so the the president could not, or and and had to have elections. So everyone knew that the president, although all powerful or nearly all powerful, could only last for six years. So mm. very you know rivals or similarly ambitious politicians kind of thought that if they waited in line, they would have their turn. And that creates a lot of stability mm. because people are loyal to it. Like, you know, ambitious and powerful politicians are loyal to the system um, rather than trying to undercut it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think the other relevant as well is the international community. So um, particularly particularly post-Cold War, um, you, you know, the US started to move towards democratization as a priority in foreign policy. Uh, you know, um, not its only concern, but certainly like in relations, and, and so did a lot of Western European countries in the promotion of democracy. Um, and so that is used by from uh, by from foreign ministries and other um, international bodies to basically um, write the terms of how you you know aid for example is sometimes tied to democratization um, trade policy is sometimes tied to democratization um, so it can be in the interests of countries to kind of pose as democracies even if they actually don't want to be democracies so um, and the kind of use of um so and you know so having done election observation missions it's very clear to me that there was a sense to which the governments were quite enthusiastic about the election observers visiting um in the hopes that the election observers would give them a free pass even if there were issues because they knew that it would affect how they were seen on the international stage and their relations with our countries. And for that reason, I think I have a kind of sense, albeit I don't think I've seen research on this, but it's, um, I don't know if there is or isn't because this isn't really my area. Um, but it strikes me that there may actually be a relationship between competitive authoritarianism and, and poverty to some extent in terms of, if you're a wealthier um, competitive authoritarian regime, you don't need that internet. If you're a wealthier authoritarian regime, you don't need that outside support so much. China does not fundamentally right now need support from the outside world. 
Um, so it can, so it's happy to maintain a kind of authoritarian pose. Um, but for example, when I visited Armenia, Armenia did need that support from the outside world. Um, so, so did Ukraine. Um, and you know, I remember, I remember someone on election mission I was with talking about the, the, um, observing elections in Kazakhstan and saying, oh, the thing with Kazakhstan is um, like they're so rich that they don't, they don't care, so they just literally stuff ballots right in front of you. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> um, so uh, um, because Kazakhstan has um, had a kind of resource um, boom. Um, so I think that's, I, I, as I say, I don't know if that's something that's discussed in the literature because it's not my area, but it does strike me as a, uh, um, as one aspect of how these regimes come about um, and the kind of purposes of how they kind of work. It's it's a very important point that it's it's much easier to kind of like um, test whether, to, to kind of like uh, gauge whether or not elections are, are, uh, are being, if they're integral, if there's like electoral integrity on on the day of the election, or mm. you know, right around election day, and then whether or not ballots were counted properly, etc., then it yeah. is to kind of gauge whether or not there's a fair, like a level playing field. So, for mm. example, the use of money is very oftentimes very difficult to kind of assess. Um, much, yeah. you know, much more difficult to prove that a, that a, that one party has been, you know. Uh, has an extraordinary amount of money that's being used, if, especially if it's like in cash. Um, vote, vote buying is really difficult to prove as well. So yeah, the day yeah. of the election can pass with very kind of, you know, it can seem like it's fair in the eyes of international observers, for example, and gain mm. international legitimacy, as you were saying, Chris. But then the things that came before it, mm. the, the actual competition can be, you know, mired. Yeah. Yeah, and if you take a look at what has been happening to election observation in recent years, what's tended to be happening is that, um, so that it, the, these days there's typically two parts of a, an election observation mission. There's what they call the long-term observation, where they have a kind of much smaller team, um, typically of diplomats that kind of are in the country over a period of months. And then, like a few weeks before the election, the short-term observation mission will happen, where they um, in, bring in a far large number of um, observers to, like, literally go into polling stations and watch um, votes being cast and then being counted. Um, so, uh, and what we've, what I have, what has been observed is that foreign ministries are now downscaling the short-term observation missions in favor of the long-term observation missions. So clearly, clearly governments have noticed this. They also like doing that because frankly, it saves them money. Because <laughs> 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 like, it's obviously sending a longer term team of, um, it, um, of a much smaller number is, is cheaper than um, putting up like, so I think the biggest election observation mission I ever heard of was um, one one of the last Ukraine it was one of the Ukrainian missions that had a thousand people on it <laughs> um, because it's a big country and um, they uh, 
they also you know creating a government was uh, it was just post maiden so they were like really enthusiastic about having like <laughs> you deserve the crap out of us please <laughs> but um so um yeah it, it, there's certainly it, it's certainly something that governments have been reacting to um in a reasonable manner but yeah um, and that, that's telling in and of itself because the the stuff that government that's being cared about more now is increasingly stuff like the media environment um campaign financing um and so on and to some extent things like um, rapid changes of electoral law. So um, go governments around the world don't really have rules on um, what electoral system you should use or like anti-gerrymandering, as we've discussed on this podcast in the past, um, because um, such rules would probably negatively affect a lot of Western governments too. <laughs> um, but um, they do um, have, so for example, rules around you shouldn't change the electoral system too soon before an election because, you know, it makes it hard for opposition parties to adapt. Um, and and if you're doing it at that point, you're probably doing it in your own interests anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I think the Venice Commission recommends that you don't change your electoral system more than a year before an election. Do you want to talk about some examples of um interactions with competitive authoritarian regimes um yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes so um i think the sort of um the tools that uh, competitive authoritarian regimes have at their disposal are they they would be hard to categorize I and mean, there's so many um mm. and and they can be really diverse right so and, and sometimes surprisingly subtle as well um yeah yeah exactly so I've, like Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think an important part. I mean, sometimes, sometimes the stuff that competitive authoritarian regimes do have like an analog in Western, in like quite advanced democracies, but like the way in which they're deployed, or the kind of the severity of which they're deployed, or the um, or the way that they're combined with other tools, are sometimes um, are sometimes in- incredibly important. Uh, and that's a hard thing to categorize in and of itself. Like, yeah. why is gerrymandering okay in the US, but not okay in, in Hungary? Hungary. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The answer there is clearly it's not okay in any, in either of those. <laughs> yeah. Um, but with, yeah. within Hungary, it, it combines in with uh, another, uh, with other sets of features that make right. it a more right. authoritarian regime. Um, right. Yeah. So, like for example, for example, in during in Mexico's kind of um, single party hegemonic systems, which was a electoral, which was a competitive authoritarianism, media was not. There was not like a. There was never a nineteen eighty four style office of censorship. Mm. In that, you know, there wasn't a centralized organ that would read all print material and then ban it, right? Mm. But there was. A monopoly on paper. Mm. So there was a single company which was owned by the Mexican government that owned all of the paper in 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 the country, and it was actually really expensive to import paper. But you could still buy the paper if you were an independent, like you know, publishing house, 
And eventually, actually, an independent newspaper did buy the paper, but you would buy it at a really high rate. And the rate would, would actually be, would make it very difficult for a newspaper to be um, profitable, right? Mm-hmm. So when the newspaper was falling, was becoming more critical or publishing stories that the regime, people at the top didn't like, they would simply, you know, say, um, we, we're no longer giving you discounted prices because you're not buying enough or, um, you know, this, this year paper's gone up, et cetera. And then they would become, un, un, you know, they would become unprofitable. And most newspaper uh, publishers fell in line pretty quickly because they were more interested in making, turning a buck than, you know, exposing mm-hmm. wrongdoing. Um, of course, if, if, if a journalist was consistently publishing anti-regime news, they could find themselves in huge trouble, may, probably killed or exiled. Um, it, it, it's not that the regime didn't do that, but that wasn't the main source of um, media mm-hmm. control that they exerted, right? It was mostly through through a much more subtle, much less violent means, um, but it was very effective. And media was uh, self-censored, self-censored uh, pretty harshly, yeah, until, until kind of like the 19, 1990s or 1980s, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's something that you see. Like, yeah, Hungary is a good example of this as well. In terms of like, TV channels have all kind of wound up through kind of various murky deals owned owned by allies of the of Fidesz. Um, and when if you know there was one particularly powerful media oligarch who. Who was a former Fidesz ally who turned against them and just basically ran up the country and bankrupted through like, the, the the use of state power. Um, and it's just like um, it's not uh, it's it, it, and to some extent this stuff is just subtle enough that it's quite hard to put it down to like an individual actor. Um, but you, you can see you can see the little gears turning. Um, if you're kind of paying close attention. Yeah, one of the kind of most shocking things I've read about Hungary is that a pro-government, pro-government media company borrowed funds from a bank that has government ties to buy an independent website that was doing a lot of the independent hard-hitting journalism mm. and then just kind of changed the editorial orientation of the website and now it's like pro-government. So yeah, 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 yeah. Because online stuff is, of course, like one of the ways you can try and escape now to some extent and try and get like voice out. So, but um, like for example, Hungary's latest media law um, is has some, you know, allows the government to um, to do some quite severe stuff to um, to uh, to online journalism. And the Hungarian government gets away with justifying this because, so for example, France has quite a strong media law um, that allows the government to, it, it, you know, but in that sense, in that sense, the government in France is kind of more guarding against things like, for example, fake news information, yeah. missing, uh, and uh, rather than, you know, acting in a partisan manner, which is what right. happens in Hungary. Mm-hmm. And of course, right. that, lo- that line can be particularly advantageous. 
Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And of course, this has been in the news in the last couple of weeks in relation to Poland as well. Mm. There's been attempts to, um, with seemingly um, pass it, the government trying to pass legislation, which on paper doesn't look too controversial to just against um, media corporations being based in foreign countries, but really to stifle the fact that the last independent TV news channel is owned by an American company um, and would allow them to kind of shut it down. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's another, like we said, not entire, not 100% sure whether that's quite there yet, but definitely could be considered that, I think, on, on some yeah. metrics. And it's, it's, it's definitely, um, we'll definitely move in that direction. Um, yeah, yeah. Poland is certainly a, case, a country that I think, if we're discussing Russia as like the boundary of the line between authoritarianism and competitive authoritarianism, Poland is probably somewhere close to the line on which being a democracy, being a flawed democracy and being a um, being a competitive authoritarian regime sits. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah. And like, yeah. And like, I think, I think it's easy to, yeah, uh, the, uh, I think it's easy to understate the way in which state resources can be weaponized in countries so having like my my two experiences of election observation are in armenia and ukraine both in the points where i think it would probably be fair to describe them as particularly armenia you could definitely describe it at that point as a competitive authoritarian regime it was 2013 in ukraine i visited in 2012 when it was under the lukashenko government and and um seen as which was seen as quite authoritarian itself. Um, and uh, for example, um, like, uh, like the use of campaign finance laws I found incredibly interesting. So um, the, uh, um, and it was kind of two quite different contexts in that regard. Uh, Ukraine had and still has very weak part of campaign finance laws which, um, so for example, um, I went to um, a pretty major city in the southwest for, in the southeast of the country for my observation. And um, I remember being in the main square in the evening and there was this gigantic concert happening in favor of the party, in favor of one of the candidates. And I remember just turning to my interpreter and saying, like, do you know the people on the stage? And she's just like, yeah, they're all from like Ukrainian X Factor. Like they're kind of like really well known. They're quite well known um, stars in the country, and it's like it was clearly a huge amount of money. And I was like, "Has this has does this happen a lot?" And she just said to me, "Oh yeah, this is like the seventh time, like this election." <laughs> like, like, and that's because Ukraine has a a very unequal economic structure in which there are very powerful economic oligarchs who are backing party regions. So therefore having a campaign finance law, which essentially has massive gaping holes in it, allowing for essentially spending infinite amounts of money creates an an equal playing field in favor of the party of region or created an unequal playing field in favor of the party of region. Still a problem in Ukrainian elections, albeit not as much of one as it was. 
whereas Armenia, on the other hand, had a very restrictive campaign financing laws to the point where opposition parties could barely find the money to run like proper national campaigns um, because they didn't have that same economic structure. But the Republican Party, which was then in power, was able to abuse state resources by, for example, rather than renting um, campaign offices, they were basing their campaigns out of schools um, and other kind of state-owned buildings, um, you know, theoretically playing like a notionally tiny amount of rent for um, for um, the the use of these buildings. Uh, um, so they were essentially able to get their campaign finance uh, campaign financing down um, through that, um, and also, for example, abusing state resources. So, I mean, I don't know how much weight to put on this, but for example, someone on the mission um, had an encounter in a polling station, which was, I think, was telling, where um, in Armenia at the time, I don't know if it's still the same, you had an internal passport that was stamped when you voted in the election. Um, so, and a woman came to the polling station and um, tried to vote and found out that her name had already been crossed off. It was like an administrative mistake. It wasn't like a, 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 anything to do. Someone, uh, it seemed that the, um, uh, the um, election administrator had essentially crossed off the name, the wrong name accidentally. Um, so that wasn't such a big deal. But what was a big deal was that she then started to visibly panic and she started to visibly panic um, she revealed because she had worked. She worked for the civil service, and her mm -hmm. boss had told her that if she didn't vote, then she'd be fired. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so clearly, she had been compelled to go and vote. And you know, maybe that's uh, you know um, one rogue middle manager. Maybe that's a kind of more systematic thing. But um, it, it, well, it, it's a clearly a case of government. It, 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 there's a kind of clear sense there that of the potential for government to kind of you uh, use its position against um you know people who work for it or who rely on it sort of for livelihoods yeah i mean in mexico it used to be the case that a percentage of civil servants income was discounted and then sent to the party and mm. this still happened like just five years ago they discovered that the electoral administrator discovered that this was still going on in the northern state of Mexico, where there hadn't been a transition to, there hadn't been alternation in power. There still hasn't been, and so civil servants were still paying donations to um, a particular party. I think I can guess which one. <laughs> yeah, some of them weren't even aware. It was just like discounted directly, which is ludicrous. It's it's crazy. It's yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's like yeah, little it's like little things like that, just like yeah, in combination of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, another another big thing is um, you know, placing uh ballot boxes in kind of hostile territory to the opposition, mm. right? Like putting it in the house of a well-known kind of a party activist, or yeah, in a neighborhood where they know that the opposition won't won't really go to vote unless they or very few people will go to vote there. Um, mm. the, yeah, I had one at the, the my tongue, I forgot. Oh, right. The other one is basically, um, asking news, like paying news anchors 
to air to be kind of like openly pro incumbent mm. um, and pass that off as news. That's that's obviously very also kind of it still happens all the time, uh, lots of places. Yeah, but yeah, it's, it's an insidious one. Yeah, and, yeah, and, and, and then yeah, toying with electoral rules. We've kind of discussed a little bit, but like for example, toying with electoral registers is a kind of classic one as we you know as we discussed with Zambia um last week um like that's something that happened there um it, it, you know uh, it, you know purging electoral registers or or um to try and you know remove opposition people from it while you know claiming that you're doing it for the validity of the electoral register is a kind of classic one yeah going towards like patronage politics right so like um getting local leaders to assure you that they're you know they'll give you like ten thousand votes or something and then those local leaders go down to like whatever maybe it's like their union or or maybe it's um Mm. i don't know a group of people pays them asks for a photograph on their cell phone of the ballot where they've voted for that party and then that person gets money from from a political party. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and just like plain bribery is like a good, and sometimes and sometimes like working with, um, kind of, you know, actors on the ground who are, for example, possibly even violent. Um, so you know, like organized crime groups um, can be used. To your benefit, um, um, in in some cases, by, for example, abusing um, opposition supporters, or uh, with a kind of with a kind of notion of, we'll kind of let you get away with certain things if you uh, if you uh, work for us, essence, and that kind of gives governments uh, a kind of diluted responsibility because it goes oh this opposition this group is clearly acting as a rogue group it's not our fault that they've gone and abused the opposition um <laughs> yeah exactly the, the 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 number of things that can happen are, count, are really like countless yeah. i mean in, in venezuela obviously there was a lot of uh government services that were tied towards electoral uh, fidelity, right? Or like, you know, vote. So that was like patronage politics, but it's gotten to a point where in the middle of this huge kind of economic crisis that's, that's been prolonged and, and terrible lack of food, food is distributed according by neighborhood, according to electoral results in that neighborhood, mm. right? So it's, it's kind of an extreme form of patronage. Um, mm. Absolutely. What else? I don't know. I think it's it's kind of fascinating to talk about these uh, to talk about competitive authoritarianism because it opens up your imagination or 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 kind of uh, yeah a reflection around just the fact that elections happen all the time in all sorts of circumstances. I, mm. I'm always I always have to remind myself that the Pope is also elected by cardinals, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yes. It's not democratic, right? So elections happen all the time, um, and we have to rid ourselves of the uh, notion that they always happen in the context yeah. of democracy. It's not, yeah. it's not true. And I, I think they. I think it's a useful thing to remind 
um, people who've grown up in advanced democratic settings as well, because it's a helpful reminder of what backsliding looks like to some extent. So, for example, when you know when stuff happened, started happening in the US, those of us who had learned about competitive authoritarian regimes, I think, were more quick to look out for the warning signs of what um, of of what kind of things might represent a kind of severe competitive authoritarian it kind of moves in that direction um uh, and you know that's not to say that you know others couldn't identify them too but you know you have a kind of from, from you know some of the best stuff that was written about um the threat that trump represented i think was from people who'd um, looked closely at Hungary in particular, but um, other kind of similar regimes. Yeah, um, I think we'll. I think it's probably just worth briefly saying that, um, of course, we will be talking about competitive authoritarian regimes later this year. For, for example, the Hungarian opposition is having a an election primary um, to choose who's going to be its prime minister candidate um, in the autumn, uh, which is yeah something. I'm, Looking forward to discussing um, in mm-hmm. uh, um, in, in, in as kind of odd as it will probably uh, as uh, as uh, um, as depressing a context as Hungary can be at times. <laughs> um, yeah, it, that should be a, an interesting event. Okay, all right. So we'll see everyone next week. I think where we'll be. Um, discussing Morocco, I believe. Um, which, yes, which is not not a country any of us, I think, particularly knows too much about. But we'll, we'll yeah. do our research well, and, and hopefully I'll we'll try and find someone who's pretty informative. Well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Um, goodbye, everyone. Um, and as usual, please do rate and subscribe wherever you listen. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.